Well, we're going to dive into God's Word in a minute, but I wanted to let you know about a few announcements first. Uh, you see several of those uh, in your bulletin today. The Victor Valley Warming Shelter is one that's close to my heart. This is the first time we've announced this here at the church, uh, at least this year. Uh, the Warming Shelter is going to be a little bit different this year. Uh, it's going to be available starting in late November when nighttime temperatures dip below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. It's going to be just adjacent to the fairgrounds on 7th Street, and this is designed for homeless men, women, and children uh, who are out on the streets, and we want to make sure that they're not in, uh, in and around freezing temperatures without some sort of shelter. And so the Victor Valley Rescue Mission is looking for somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 different churches uh, to be able to assemble a team of adults between 10 and 12 adults from each church to be able either one night a week or one night every two weeks to be able to fully staff that warming shelter uh, for the homeless men, women, and children that need that on a particular night. And so we've got a sign-up in the lobby. You can also just write it on your communication card. If you could help out with this, uh, this is something that God's given me a burden about. We as a church have the ability to say, you know what, we're going to step it up. And we're going to staff this one night a week during these cold winter months. You and I have the luxury of a roof over our heads, good insulation in our homes or apartments, and a heater when it gets really cold. Many on the streets don't have any of those luxuries. And so we want to be a blessing uh, to those doing what Jesus would have us do. Uh, Secondly, Pray for America. I mentioned this last week, our Monday night prayer meetings leading up to Election Day. Uh, We're going to have a special emphasis on praying for our nation with all the hurricanes that have been going on and all the political pandemonium and and, uh, mobs in the streets and whatnot we've seen recently. We need to be praying for our nation. And so I look forward to being here tomorrow night with you as we have a time of worship and a time of prayer for our nation and at the same time lifting up other prayer needs that you may put on your card this morning. Uh, thirdly, our 180 Fear Factor event. Teenagers, woohoo! Oh, they seem really excited this morning. It's coming up this Friday. It's a great outreach uh, here coming up at the end of October. There's going to be dinner. There's going to be all sorts of crazy challenges as part of that Fear Factor event. Prizes to go along with that. And so uh, teens, remember to invite some friends that maybe normally don't get to come to uh, 180 Youth. It's going to be a little bit longer this week, 6 to 9. So it will be a three-hour event this Friday at 6 o'clock. See Paco, otherwise known as Javier, in the sound booth if you guys have any questions about that. And then finally, the Perseverance Conference. Don't forget that's coming up in just two weeks. Alan's in back. Wave to us, Alan. He'll be in the lobby after service. If you have not purchased your tickets yet, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be an amazing day of ministry. You are going to be blessed if you go. If you've never been to anything like this, you've got to check it out. It's going to be awesome, and God's going to be doing some great things that day. So see Alan after the service uh, to get your tickets or find out more. And with that, we're going to dive into God's Word. Amen? Amen. Now, I wasn't able to fact check what I'm about to tell you. And so I can't guarantee it's true. But the story goes that President Grover Cleveland, when he had his second child, the child was born and he and his wife were excited. The family and friends were thrilled that their second baby had been born. But they had a problem. They couldn't find a scale to weigh the baby. And they looked all over the house. They couldn't find anything. So finally someone remembered that there was a scale down in the cellar. And so someone went down into the cellar to grab the scale that President Cleveland used when he went on his fishing trips. And so they brought up his fishing scale, and they weighed their newborn baby, and everyone was shocked to discover that President Cleveland was the proud father of a 25-pound baby. You see, Grover Cleveland evidently needed to tweak his scales a little bit to make his fish stories seem a little bit more exciting. But Jesus never had that problem, did he? Amen? need you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1 today. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, I encourage you to bring it next time. In the meantime, though, you can grab one of the blue ones from the rack in front of you. If you borrow one of those blue Bibles, you'll find this on page 1019. The rest of you turn to Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Last week, as we finished Luke chapter 4, Jesus was doing some amazing ministry there in the city of Capernaum, there in the region of Galilee. He was in the synagogue teaching God's word. 
with powerful conviction, and people were amazed at how he taught God's word with authority. Remember, as he was teaching there in the synagogue, a demon-possessed man came up, and Jesus drove out the demon, and the people were further amazed. Not only did he teach God's word with authority, he was able to drive out demons with a single word. And so they're amazed, and then Jesus goes to the home of Simon Peter, his mother-in-law, was in bed with a high fever. Jesus heals her of her fever, and one by one at sundown, people are bringing all the sick and diseased from Capernaum to Jesus, and one by one he heals every single illness and disease. Chapter 4 ends with these words, And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, if you're familiar with the geography of Israel, Judea technically is the southern region of Israel. And we know that Jesus spent most of his ministry years up in the north in the region of Galilee. So it doesn't seem to jive with what Luke is saying here. Well, Luke seems to be using that term Judea as a synonym for all of Israel. So as chapter 4 comes to an end, uh, Luke is telling us that Jesus continued preaching in the synagogues throughout Israel. Interestingly, as we come to chapter 5, Luke is going to shift gears a little bit and share a story of Jesus doing something miraculous, not inside a synagogue this time, but outside on a beach. And so I'm calling this message today, Catch and Release. And as we make our way through the passage today, I think you'll see how that title applies nicely. Would you pray with me today? Father, you say in your word, that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so, Lord, we come today into this room in faith, believing that you knew even before the beginning of time that this passage would be presented and preached on this day, in this place, to these people here. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do what you guaranteed you would do, that as the word is preached that your word would be received and that it would not return to you void, but accomplish the purpose for which you are sending it. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn to the person next to you, ask them, are you ready to dive into God's word today? Now tell them, well, you better be. Amen. We're in Luke chapter 5. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. One day... As Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water. And let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything. And they followed him. May God bless us as we study his word today. Jesus' first year of ministry was moving along pretty quickly, and quite often the crowds that flocked to Jesus were too large to be contained within a single home or within even a synagogue. And so oftentimes as Jesus' ministry progressed, he would find the need to go outside and do his teaching. So at times in the Gospels, we find Jesus doing his teaching on the mountainside. You remember a little message called the Sermon on the Mount? There was a reason he was on a mountainside, because the crowd was thousands big. They couldn't fit in a synagogue, not even close. 
At times in Luke, a little bit long, a little bit further along in the book, we'll see the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus goes out to a, a large valley, a large flat area. He teaches the people there, and even on some occasions, Jesus would go to the beach and teach the people. How many of you would like to hear Jesus preach on the beach? You know, I've been to a beach church service once in my life, and when I was overseeing a college group, fresh out of college, uh, we used to go every week and, and do some beach Bible studies, but I did go to an actual Sunday morning worship service once on the beach, and it was really roughing it uh, there in Waikiki when I went to that beach service. But I figured someone had to go, so I went ahead and went that morning. But anyways, he's there on the beach doing ministry on this particular occasion early in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is standing on the beach, and you can kind of imagine the scene there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. My best guess is this was probably the beach right outside of Capernaum because that's where Jesus was doing his ministry in chapter 4. So Capernaum being a beachside town, he probably went to the beach outside of Capernaum. He's standing there on the beach, and you can imagine he begins teaching, and there's maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen people gathered around him. And after a few minutes, word begins to spread that Jesus is teaching on the beach. And so after a few minutes, there's maybe 50. And then a few minutes later, probably 100, and then 200, and then 500. And pretty soon, as we get to verses 2 and 3, we see that the crowd is so large, they're pressing in on Jesus. And so Jesus glances over his shoulder, and what does he see? He sees two empty fishing boats. They're docked on the shore. Now, one of those boats belonged to Simon Peter. Simon Peter had already begun following Jesus part-time. If you go to John chapter 1, you can see how uh, he met Jesus for the first time several months earlier. And so Peter had already begun following Jesus part-time, and Jesus knew Peter, knew that was his boat, and he gets inside the thing and says, Hey, uh, Simon, can you shove off from shore a few yards and, and drop anchor, and I'll just teach the people from the boat. Well, this sounded like a good enough idea to Simon, and so Simon Peter does what Jesus asks him to do. He goes a few yards offshore. He drops anchor. Jesus sits down on the edge of the boat that was facing the shore. And as he was there a few yards off the water, this was able to accomplish a few things. For starters, that big crowd could kind of fan out on the beach and not have to crowd in on Jesus. So they had a little bit more elbow room. And because Jesus was outside uh, on the water a few yards off of the shore, the offshore breeze would naturally, acoustically, move his voice toward the shoreline, and the slope of the shore, the slope of that beach, would make the acoustics pretty good. And so there Jesus is, sitting on the edge of the boat, teaching the people, probably hundreds upon hundreds of people there on the beach, listening to Jesus teach. Well, he teaches them for a while, as he's facing the shore and bobbing up and down on those little waves. Kind of interesting what Jesus is doing there. And Jesus teaches the people. Now, I want to share something about this particular lake of Gennesaret. It's Lake of Gennesaret. We read that term. It's like, what on earth is, is that? I've never even heard of this lake before. Well, Lake of Gennesaret is simply another term for the Sea of Galilee. And for one reason or another, that Sea of Galilee goes by a number of, of different terms. In the Old Testament, it's called the Sea of Chinnereth. These days, if you go to Israel, it's called the Sea of Kinneret. If you read the Gospel of John, John refers to the Sea of Galilee as the Sea of Tiberias. And so over the course of the past, oh, I don't know, 30 centuries or so, this particular Sea of Galilee has gone by a number of different names. So where does Luke get this name Gennesaret? Well, remember, he was a non-Jew. He wasn't a native of Israel, and so he spoke Greek fluently. And being someone who was born and raised and spent most of his life outside of Israel, he had spent time on the Mediterranean Sea, which was a huge sea. And when he looked at the Sea of Galilee, this thing was dinky compared to the Mediterranean Sea. So for starters, he called it a lake, not a sea because he thought it was far too small to be a sea. And also he calls it Gennesaret because being a fluent Greek speaker, Gennesaret is a Greek adaptation of that Hebrew name Chinnereth, by which it's known today and by which it was called in the Old Testament. So as you're reading in the, the Bible the Sea of Chinnereth or the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Gennesaret, it's all referring to the same Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is an interesting little sea. It is more of a lake. It's not that big. It's, it's only really about eight miles long, excuse me, eight miles wide, and about 13 miles long. 
So to kind of put it in perspective, how many of you have seen Lake Tahoe before? Okay, the Sea of Galilee is only about two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe, a little bit closer to home. How many of you have ever been in the city of Victorville? Anyone? Anyone? The city of Victorville is actually larger than the Sea of Galilee. Okay? So we're not talking about a very big sea. If you were to be able to have a marathon running around the outer edge of the Sea of Galilee, when you finish that 26-mile marathon, you'd only about be about seven miles from finishing the loop. So it's a lake. Luke is correct. It's not really a sea, it's a lake. And it's a very important lake in Israel. It's by far the largest freshwater lake in Israel. But catch this. It's actually, elevation-wise, the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. I didn't realize this until last week. The Sea of Galilee is 703 feet below sea level. That's pretty interesting for a freshwater lake. There's only one lake in the whole world that is at a lower elevation than the Sea of Galilee. It's a salt lake. You remember which one that is? It's also in Israel, the Dead Sea. So the Sea of Galilee is about 703 feet below sea level. It's a freshwater lake. The only lake lower than that on the planet is the Dead Sea, which technically is also a lake. It's at 1,400 feet below sea level. And so there's a reason, being so low, that it has a salt contact that's content that's some ten times more salty than ocean water. It's like a 33% salt ratio in the Dead Sea. That's why nothing can live in it. But anyways, the Sea of Galilee, largest freshwater lake in Israel, not a huge lake, but a very instrumental, important lake. And in Jesus' day, I've read that there were nine clusters of towns. And so these little townships, a number of towns clustered together, there were nine of these clusters around the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so each of these clusters of towns, I've been told, had at least 15,000 in population. And so you can imagine if Jesus was teaching on the beach outside of Capernaum, There were a couple reasons the crowd got so big. For starters, Jesus had become a very popular preacher, and so crowds kind of gathered wherever he was. But because this beach setting was so close to concentrated population centers, within a few minutes, hundreds of people could be gathered at Jesus' side to hear this message. So there he is on the Sea of Galilee, bobbing up and down, giving his message. And after he finishes the message, we read in verses 4 and 5, After Jesus finished teaching, he tells Simon this, Put out into deeper water and let down the nets for a catch. To which Simon Peter responds, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Now, Simon's words give us some good insight into what had been taking place over the last 12 to 15 hours. It's clear from his response that he and his fishing partners had been fishing all night long. Now, unlike most of us, he didn't use a rod and a reel, a little hook on the end of a line to catch his fish. Like fishermen even today on the Sea of Galilee, he used dragnets. It's a photo of guys using dragnets from the shore, but what they would typically do in those days is they would go out a couple fishing boats because they had their partner fishermen, and they would drag these dragnets. And so what they would do in Peter's day, uh, from what I've read, is they would go out at nighttime because there were some deeper parts to the Sea of Galilee out in the middle of the, of the lake. And what would happen is at nighttime, with the cool nighttime air, those fish would come up from the depths and come closer to the surface to do their feeding in the middle of the night. And so as those fishermen would go out, they would drag their nets. And oftentimes they discovered that if they dragged those dragnets in the shallow water, the lower part of the nets could basically scrape the bottom of the uh, lake there, and they would catch, if they were lucky, a few dozen fish with one casting of the net. And so there they were all night long. Peter and his companions, they were professional fishermen, so they had tried all the tricks of the trade, undoubtedly. They had gone to shallow water at the right time of day, there in the middle of the night. Imagine, 2, 3 a.m., they're dragging their dragnets across shallow water, and they pull up their nets, and they feel a little lighter than they'd like them to feel, but they're hoping beyond hope some of those fish are in there, but they pull up their nets, and they've got bupkis. They've got nothing. So they cast them out again, and they do it again and again, and it's not working, so they say, well, let's try some deep water. And so they go a mile out onto the lake, and they drop those nets into deep water. They bring them up again and again, and there's nothing. 
Well, let's throw some chum out there. They throw the chum out there trying to entice the fish to come up and feed. And so they throw the chum out, and all they end up doing is losing chum because still they've got nothing. They finished fishing all night long, and the only thing they caught was some seaweed, some old shoes, and a couple empty cans of beer. And so there they are on the shore. They're cleaning out all the junk from their nets. They wish there were fish in there, but there were no fish, only junk. Now, have you ever wondered what kind of fish are there in the Sea of Galilee? I've been hearing about the Sea of Galilee my entire life, and I never really cared, I guess. But this week I kind of cared for some reason. I wonder what's in that sea. I wonder what's in that lake. And so I did a little research, and I discovered that there's between 18 and 24 different species of fish there in the Sea of Galilee, and most of those fish species are edible. The most famous fish is this little guy right here. Any guesses what kind of fish this is? A tilapia. Galilea is what it's called, a tilapia Galilea, I guess a specialized kind of tilapia that's there in the Sea of Galilee. But this little guy goes by a nickname. He's nicknamed St. Peter's Fish. This wasn't a large fish. My personal opinion is that Simon Peter, after a long night of fishing, liked to grill one of those fish and have it with a side of fries and a salad. That's what I'm thinking. And so it's not a large fish. You can see it on the plate there. One man could easily eat one whole fish. No problem. No problem. So it's it's a little guy about the size of a a man's hand. And so there they were fishing for these little tilapia galilea and whatever other kind of carp or other species of fish they might be able to catch in their nets. Simon and his partners, at the end of the night, as they're cleaning their nets, they're frustrated, they're exhausted, they hadn't slept a wink all night, they had already spent who knows how long washing their nets and cleaning out all the junk that was stuck to them, and all Simon wanted to do was to cut his losses and to go home and catch some much-needed rest. And then Jesus has to speak up. It wasn't so bad that Jesus wanted him to shove off from the shore a few yards and teach for a little while. Simon was okay with that. But now Jesus says, go out to deep water, which is like a mile away from where they were in that boat. And he wants him to let down his nets in deep water. And that was definitely not what Simon Peter wanted to hear. Master, he replies, we've worked hard all night long and we haven't caught anything. You can kind of imagine what must have been going through Simon's mind. He probably was thinking, Jesus, you don't understand what we've been through in the last 12 hours. You don't understand. With all due respect, Jesus, you're a carpenter. You don't know the first thing about fishing. Don't you understand that you don't catch fish in the late morning, in the heat of the morning? Don't you understand you don't catch fish in deep water? You catch them in shallow water. Don't you understand that there's no chance that we're going to catch any fish this time of day in the way you're asking us to catch them? And you want us to sail all the way out to deep water. We're tired. We don't feel like rowing out to deep water. I imagine that when Simon Peter started complaining about what Jesus asked him to do, I imagine Simon Peter looking up and making eye contact with Jesus. And as he makes eye contact with Jesus, all of those complaints going through his head Praise God, didn't make it out of his mouth. And so I believe as he looked at Jesus, he could read in Jesus' eyes that Jesus ain't joking. And so what does he say? He says, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so. I will let down the nets. Because you say so. Because you say so. Simon Peter's tired body didn't want to trust and obey Jesus. His tired body didn't feel like trusting and obeying Jesus. But he chose to trust and obey Him anyway. Why? Because Jesus said so. Jesus said so. Verses 6 and 7. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. You've seen some lowriders out in the streets of Victorville. They had some lowriders on the Sea of Galilee that day. Man, those things are down in the water. Either Peter had been putting on a few or he'd been having an amazing catch. 
unlike anything they had ever had in their entire fishing careers. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. When someone in Scripture encounters an angel, we've talked about this before, the most common reaction to the appearance of an angel in Scripture is to be scared to death. But when we see someone in Scripture encountering God Himself in His glory, the most common reaction is to express a a deep sense of, of personal guilt, a deep sense of sinfulness and unworthiness, That's the reaction we see from Abraham when God appeared to Abraham. That's the reaction we see from Job when God spoke to Job at the end of his trial. That's the reaction we see from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5 when God is coming and he's filling the temple with his glory, Isaiah basically falls on his face before God and he says, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Well, there on his own fishing boat, there using his own nets, as Simon Peter experienced a small taste of the power and the glory of Jesus Christ, he felt like a sinful wretch, unworthy to be in the presence of his holy Lord and Savior. But Jesus wasn't about to do what Peter asked him to do. Peter said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I don't deserve to be in your presence. But Jesus says, no, Peter. No, Simon. Verse 10, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Not only do I not want you to go away, Simon, I want you to draw closer. Isn't that just like Jesus? I say, you know what, I... I've been too bad, man. I can't serve you, Jesus. I don't deserve to be forgiven by you, let alone do something valuable for you. And Jesus says, no, you got it all wrong. You're right, you don't deserve forgiveness, but I didn't come to earth because you deserved it. I came to earth because I love you, and I want to be in a relationship with you, and I want to give your life meaning and purpose, and I want you to be able to be with me, to be in fellowship with me, and help do my work. And what a wonderful blessing. One of the commentaries I was reading pointed out that Jesus could have done any number of things to have a large catch of fish that day. Jesus could have brought down the angels from heaven and say, Peter, uh, let these guys show you how it's done. That boat of yours, man, this thing's dinky. See the barnacles on the bottom of this thing? Buddy, you need a cleaner boat. I'm the king of kings. I'm the lord of lords. Hey, Gabriel, bring me a better boat. Peter's is stinky. I don't want it. He could have brought down his angel fisherman. He could have brought down a ship. He could have brought down anything he wanted. But notice how he chose to use the humble boat and the humble nets and the humble fishermen who own those boats and nets. That's just like Jesus. See what I've done here, Peter? I want you to keep on doing work for me, but it's going to be a lot more important work than catching some fish. You're going to start catching some men. Luke says, they pulled their boats up on the shore. They left most of their stuff. Is that what it says in verse 11? Isn't that something? They pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now remember, Luke is a doctor, so he uses precise language. When he says everything, he means everything. That means Peter left his boat. Peter left his nets. He left the greatest catch of fish in the history of his fishing career there on the beach. He left his partners. He left his job. He left his livelihood. He left his family. He left everything to follow Jesus. And some of us look at that today and say, wow, that's a little overkill, isn't it? And to those that think that's overkill, Jesus says to us in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. Bottom line, anything you leave for Jesus 
he'll more than make up for. Starting in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. The scene changes here in verse 12. Jesus is no longer bobbing up and down on the waves of the Sea of Galilee there in that fishing boat. The scene changes. Jesus is now in one of those Galilean towns and he's teaching the people. And as he's there in the town, he's approached by this man with leprosy. Now, remember I just mentioned that Luke being a doctor, he uses precise language, especially when he's talking about a medical condition. So when he says a man is covered with leprosy, he's saying this is a doctor. He doesn't mean this man had a little breakout of leprosy on his left arm. He's not saying he had a little patch of leprosy on the back of his right shoulder. When he says this man was covered in leprosy, he means he was covered head to toe in leprosy. This man had an advanced case of leprosy. Well, what is leprosy? Well, as you know, in Bible times, medical science wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today. And so leprosy, in all likelihood, in Bible times, was a term used for possibly dozens of different skin ailments and diseases. They didn't have a word for psoriasis. They didn't have a word for eczema. A leprosy was kind of a general term used. But as we look at the descriptions of these with severe cases of leprosy in both the Old and New Testament, it seems pretty clear that most of the time we read of lepers in the Bible, it's referring to what we call today as Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease, a lot of studies have taken place on this disease over the last couple hundred years. And we know today that Hansen's disease is the result of an infection caused by this slow-growing bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. Mycobacterium leprae. You want to try to say that one? That was impressive. I had to practice a few times. So this Mycobacterium leprae can destroy the skin. It can destroy uh, the fingertips. It can destroy the nose and the eyes. And it does this because this Mycobacterium leprae, this leprosy bacteria, destroys the nerve endings in the body. I want to put a few images on the screen for you here. This first image gives you an idea of leprous sores that can break out all over the body. This guy has, you might want to drop the lights for just a sec so we can see that a little easier. He's got this, this leprosy that's broken out all over his face, this Hansen's disease. Now these next two photos, before we put them up, I want to give you a little warning. These are a little bit more disturbing. And I'll show in a moment why these types of things happen to those in third world countries that have leprosy. Go ahead and put up this next one. So what happens because the nerve endings are destroyed for centuries, people believe that when you had leprosy and it got advanced, uh, your fingertips and your toes would fall off. But what we discovered in the last hundred years is the nerve endings are being destroyed and so the person cannot feel pain. There was one document I read that a little boy took his bare hand and he tore off a metal padlock from a door that was locked. And at first, the person that saw him do this was amazed. This kid seemed to have superhuman strength until he looked down at his hand and pools of blood were pouring off of his hand. You see, what happened was his nerve endings were dead in his fingertips. And so he applied so much pressure and pull to that metal padlock, he didn't feel the natural pain that would keep him from destroying his fingers in the process. They discovered that what's happening in the middle of the night with these lepers in third world countries is not that their fingertips are falling off, but that rats are literally coming in and chewing off their fingers and their toes, and they don't feel a thing. There's a reason leprosy has been described as a painless hell. When we think of hell, we think of horrible, excruciating pain. But leprosy has been described as a painless hell 
because their bodies literally are destroyed because they have no sensation of pain to warn them to stop whatever it is they're doing. Nothing to warn them that rats are nibbling off their fingertips. Because they can't feel sensations on their eyeballs, when irritants get on their eyes, whether it's dust or bacteria or whatever, they don't have that natural reaction that you and I have to blink and to cause our tear ducts to produce tears to flush our eyes of any of those toxins. And because they don't have that natural blinking reaction and that sensation to blink, what happens is their eyes become dehydrated and over time they lose their eyesight. Their nose without sensation oftentimes will waste away because of one reason or another. And so this man had an advanced case of leprosy. Maybe he was close to losing some digits. Certainly he was an outcast. Certainly he was one that was experiencing this painless hell. And because Jewish law required lepers to live by themselves outside of town, in Jesus' day lepers were social outcasts who couldn't live at home or eat a meal with their families or hold a job or attend a worship service in the synagogue. Historically, we know that many lepers would end up committing suicide because they believed they could not continue to live with being a social outcast and dealing with the strain of that leprosy in its advanced stages. Well, this certain man with this advanced case of leprosy, he falls on his face in front of Jesus And he begs him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this man technically was breaking Jewish law. He wasn't supposed to be inside the city limits. Jesus was in the town when he comes and falls before Jesus. And so he was bending the rules a little bit by doing that. But notice in verse 12, Jesus bends the rules even more. Verse 12, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touches the man. Oh, that was a no-no. Leprosy was, they believed, extremely contagious. Today we know Hansen's disease is just moderately contagious. But because of hygiene issues and whatnot, God wanted to make sure that leprosy didn't spread in Bible times. But it is true that it is at least moderately contagious. You did not touch a man with leprosy. You could catch that yourself. You could catch it yourself. So Jesus reaches out, and all of Jesus' followers that were around him must have been thinking, don't do it. Don't do it, Jesus. Don't do it. Last thing we need is a Savior who's got leprosy. And he reaches out. He doesn't care what protocol is. He touches the man and says, I am willing. Be clean. Be clean. After touching the man, after saying be clean, it says immediately, The leprosy left him. I bet it did. Just as immediately as that demon left that man in chapter 4, Jesus speaks to the disease, it better leave. And that bacterium leprae just flew out of the man's body. And you kind of wonder, were digits restored? But certainly at the very least, the man for the first time in years was feeling sensations in his fingertips and in his toes. He could feel sandals underneath his feet, something he couldn't feel probably for many years. And he began to blink and realize there's stuff on my eyeballs. And he began to feel he's got his ears and his nose are still intact. And you can imagine almost like the guy that was healed at the temple. He probably starts jumping up and down and celebrating because he's got something he never had or at least hadn't had in quite some time. And this passage ends with a verse that's very similar to the verse we read near the end of chapter 4. The last part of this passage we read today, notice in verse 16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus did some amazing teaching and miracle working in this chapter, but when he walked among us, Jesus was only able to do these things because of his close, intimate relationship with the Father in heaven and because of the Holy Spirit empowering him from within. Prayer was critical to Jesus' ministry effectiveness, and you and I both know that it's critical for our ministry effectiveness as well. I want to give you three life lessons that I think are so important for us today. Lesson number one, regardless of how tired, how hungry, or how uninspired we feel, we must obey Christ's commands because because Jesus said so. Because Jesus said so. How many of you sometimes aren't the most pleasant people to deal with first thing in the morning? How many people are lying this morning? 
Some of us are morning people. The other 95% of us, <laughs> not the most pleasant first thing in the morning. Sometimes we're tired, we're hungry, we're exhausted, and the only thing we want to do is crash in that bed of ours and close our eyes and get some much-needed sleep. Well, so often we as Christians make Christianity, I think, far too complicated. Christianity isn't very complicated, but we make it that way. We pick and choose when to obey Christ's commands and when to disobey them. When we obey them, we oftentimes don't obey them completely, or we can procrastinate and don't obey them immediately like he tells us to. We obey when we get around to it. But friends, you've heard me say before, Christianity is not complicated. Christianity boils down to these three things. And if you can master these three things, you're well on your way to bringing a huge smile to Jesus' face. Number one, you trust Him. Number two, you love Him. And number three, you obey Him. That's Christianity in a nutshell. We trust Him. We love Him. And we obey Him. And yet we make Christianity so complicated at times. Simon Peter's tired body didn't want to trust and obey Jesus. His tired body didn't feel like trusting and obeying Jesus. But he chose to trust and obey Him anyway. Why? Because Jesus said so. And it was as simple as that for Peter. Lesson number two. Good intentions and hard work are not enough. Only Jesus can make an otherwise ineffective life productive. Good intentions and hard work are not enough. Only Jesus can make an otherwise ineffective life productive. This lesson I pulled from a wonderful little comment from Chuck Swindoll who writes, When Simon obeyed Jesus and put out to deep water, he didn't see anything supernatural. Catch this. I think this is so good. So he's rolling out to the deep water. So follow me on this. Swindoll writes, The water didn't glow. The boat didn't have a little halo over it. Jesus didn't bring nets from heaven that tingle when touched. Simon rode the same boat he had been in all night using the same nets that had come up empty. But this time the results were different. Jesus performed this miracle not for the sake of the people on the shore, but for Simon and his partners. His object lesson taught the men that good intentions and earnest effort are not enough. Only the Lord can make an otherwise futile life productive. I love that last sentence. Only the Lord can make an otherwise futile life productive. Amen. 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 Never forget that Peter, not Jesus, was the professional fisherman. Never forget that that Peter... He was the one that had the right equipment. Maybe it wasn't an angelic level boat, but he had the fishing boat. Maybe they weren't the greatest nets, but he had the professional drag net. He had the right boat. He had the right nets. Jesus didn't have as much as a rod and a reel on that day. Peter had the right equipment. He had the right training. He had the right experience. He had the right skill. He had the right know-how of the terrain. He knew how fish bit on that Sea of Galilee. He had everything going for him. But when all was said and done, he ended up at the end of the night with Bupkis, didn't he? He didn't catch beans. Before Jesus got involved, Simon Peter's wonderful equipment and expertise and training got him nothing. And the same goes for you and me. I was thinking again about this this morning. There are times in life when you can lean on your own understanding and you can lean on your own skill and you can lean on your own street savvy and you end up doing okay when you do that. But inevitably you will come to times in your life when you come up to a dead end and you try everything in your grab bag. You've got all the right stuff. You've got all the right equipment. You've got the right vehicle. You've got the right house. You've got the right training. You've got the right degree from college. You've got the right practice in doing that particular thing that you're trying to accomplish. And when all is said and done, you're up against this brick wall and it won't budge. And you scratch your head thinking, I've done everything I can and I need something else 
And Jesus screams to us from Luke chapter 5, what you need not is something else, what you need is someone else. When we come up empty in our efforts, in our wisdom, in our skill, in our expertise, don't cut it. Jesus Christ gives us what we need. Jesus Christ lets us know that good intentions and hard work are not enough. Only He can make an otherwise ineffective life productive. And this third lesson, probably of the three, is my favorite. This is a quote from William Barclay. I couldn't improve upon it, so I'm just giving you his quote. It is of the very essence of Christianity to touch the untouchable, to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable. Jesus did, and so must we. Isn't that good? Would you read that with me? It is of the very essence of Christianity to touch the untouchable, to love the unlovable, and to forgive the unforgivable. Jesus did, and so must we. The man who was covered in leprosy was a Jewish untouchable. Most of you know this. In those days, if he was coming anywhere close to town or people were leaving town to go to another town and they were passing a guy that had leprosy, he was required by law to yell out to them, Unclean! Unclean! He was untouchable. But Jesus touched him anyway. I imagine this man felt rejected and unloved like most lepers did. But Jesus loved him anyway. And he must have thought what most other Jews in his day thought, that his leprosy had to have been uh, somehow the result of God smiting him for some sin that he had committed. Because of his sin, God had smitten him with leprosy. He must have felt at times that he was unforgivable, but Jesus forgave him anyway. Jesus had this wonderful ability to touch the untouchable and love the unlovable and to forgive the unforgivable. I was thinking over this again this morning and I was reminded of this warming shelter that I mentioned to you a little bit ago. This last Friday night after the kids left school, we went over to El Pollo Loco there on 7th Street in Victorville. Many of you know the part of town. It's not necessarily the greatest part of town, but we went there to eat some dinner and we were sitting down to eat and Diagonal from us was a man that was obviously homeless eating a meal. Someone had either given him the money and he bought it or they had actually bought him the meal. But he's sitting there eating and it was clear he had his bags down there. His hair was unkept. He was doing kind of that jittery looking back and forth and around the room that you oftentimes see in a single homeless man. And I I sat down to eat and at one point he got up and went to the restroom. And I tell you, a minute after he did... I could still smell the residue of him walking by with that potent mixture of urine and booze and body odor. And it just kind of lingered in the air. And and sometimes we smell things and a memory from like 30 years ago pops back. Ever had that happen? Maybe it's chocolate chip cookies for you or some smell you haven't smelled in years. One of these days, I might smell that merthiolate. My mom used to always put that on my bumps, and I'd have these orange dots all over me. I was like, didn't you know about Neosporin, Mom? But evidently not. But that smell was residing. You know what came to mind when I smelled that lingering smell? This lesson right here that I'm sharing with you right now. And when I put this down in my notes and I prepared the slides for today and gave those over to Holly, I knew I was going to share this and I knew I believe this, that God has called me as a follower of Jesus Christ to love the unlovable and touch the untouchable and to forgive the unforgivable. I knew I was going to share that and I believe that. But when I smelled that smell of that homeless man who's been steeped in homelessness for probably a long time, God reminded me, when you smell it, it becomes a little bit more real to you, doesn't it, Dane? And I give a challenge like this warming shelter that I gave you a little bit ago, and and that is outside of most of our comfort zones. I I can't guarantee if you join me in doing this that when you go into that warming shelter, it's going to smell good. I I can't guarantee that it it may not even cause you to be a little upset in your stomach. But I want to ask you, isn't that what Christianity is all about? 
doing what's hard, doing what's uncomfortable, doing what is taboo, doing what no one else would do unless they had the Spirit of Jesus Christ living inside of them to do what most needs to be done, but no one else is willing to do it. And so I don't know about you, I've got a personal conviction to be a part of this team. And I hope later on when I look at that sign up and look over those communication cards, I see a lot of your names down there with me. Say, Dane, that's out of my comfort zone. It's out of my comfort zone too. But I want to help be there and be a part of that team. Some of you have joined our team on Tuesday mornings to give food to the hungry that come in for our food pantry. Maybe some others of you need to join that team. This morning I was thinking of other ways. What about the the convalescent homes? My dad was in a convalescent home for a week. This last Monday we brought him home, but there's a lot of people in convalescent homes that don't have visitors. We've got Desert Knolls over there on Hesperia Road and Knolls West off of Green Tree, and we've got that used to be called Apple Valley Care Center there in Jess Ranch area. We've got these different convalescent homes, and a lot of those people don't have any visitors. Maybe God's laying that on your heart to go to a convalescent home and simply ask them, is there anyone that doesn't get visited very often? I'd like to just go sit at their bedside and talk with them. There's any number of opportunities. We've got the homeless shelter there behind the old Target there on Palmdale Road in Amargosa. Maybe you have a family member. I know we've had people come to this church before that have not spoken to family members, brothers or sisters in over 20 years. And maybe God's calling you today to pick up the phone and give them a call and say, I know you haven't heard from me in a long time, but I want you to know I forgive you. And I'm sorry for what I've done in the past. And I want to see what we can do to repair this relationship. Whatever it is, God, that is calling you to do today that's hard, that's a little bit out of your comfort zone, I want you to do it. Because most of us in this room have made that conscious decision at some point in our lives to follow Jesus Christ. And I want you to know, if we've made that decision to follow Jesus Christ, our faith in Him isn't worth much. If we can't do what He did, touching the untouchable, loving the unlovable, and forgiving the unforgivable. That's what He came to do. And if we're following Him, we had better start doing it too. Lord Jesus, you touched me. You loved me. And you forgave me. And for most of us in this room, Lord, I know you've done the same. And we are deeply grateful. Lord, help us to do in others what you have done in us. Because this world desperately needs to be touched. The people in this world desperately need to be loved. Not a conditional love. Not a, hey, I'm going to scratch your back so you scratch my back kind of love. But the unconditional love of Christ in this world, Lord, needs to be forgiven as we are steeped in sin. Lord, help us to follow in your footsteps. Help people to experience the love and the forgiveness and the touch of Christ through us. In Jesus' name.